This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is brought to you by Bethlehem College where students study the great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the Great Commission. Life trajectories are set for young men and women in the pivotal period between the ages of 18 and 25. At Bethlehem College, students wrestle with these realities, not in a 200-person classroom, but a 200-person college. Bethlehem calls this approach education in serious joy and delivers it at one of the lowest tuition rates in American Christian higher education, only about $7,500 a year. Bethlehem College, education in serious joy. To apply or learn more, visit bcsmn.edu slash tgc. That's bcsmn.edu slash tgc. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Today, you'll hear a message from David Platt, originally delivered at TGC's 2021 National Conference. All right, let's pray. Oh God, we are so thankful to even be in this room or online in this setting. We're talking about the role of the local church in your global purpose. Who are we, oh God? We We deserve to be in hell right now. And here we are talking about your grace and the gospel and making it known to more and more people, being a part of your church, gathered together with brothers and sisters. We don't deserve any of this, not not one of us. Myself, first and foremost, not one of us is in this place, in this position where we find ourselves right now by any merit in us, but solely based on mercy in you. So we give you glory, we turn our eyes to you, and we praise you, we thank you for your new mercies toward us today, for your goodness and mercy that's been following us ever since we woke up this morning. It'll follow us all day long, and Tomorrow and the next day, we, we love you, God. We worship you. We praise you. We yield to you. We want your leadership in our lives and every facet of our lives. And in the next 45 minutes or so, we pray for your spirit to lead us, for your spirit to guide and direct this time. I pray that you would keep me tethered to your word. You would keep me from saying anything It would certainly go against your word, but just anything that's not in line with your word and your spirit, and you would teach us by your spirit in these few minutes that there would be nothing natural about this time we have together, but it would just be supernatural in ways that lead to fruit in our lives and our churches far beyond what we could ask or imagine. So with great anticipation... We pray for your leadership now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've got a a lot to cover that I want to dive into uh, in this session. For those of you in the room, uh, we did something last night, Radical did something called The Great Imbalance. Just out of curiosity, just by show of hands, how many of you were a part of that? Just give give me a little picture. Okay, good, decent number, but certainly not everybody. Uh, And then obviously online, uh, raise your hand. Oh, okay. So good to know. So, um, 
What I want to do is, we, there were a lot of things foundationally that we walked through last night in this event that we did that I'm going to hit on really quick at the very beginning just to get us all up to speed. And then I want to, so what we're going to do is I want to uh, walk through five foundations. Uh, and if you were here last night, you won't be surprised I don't think about any of these things. We're going to hit them pretty quickly. Uh, five foundations to kind of get us on the same page for then a discussion of 10 practical exhortations. So these are five, uh, yeah, biblical foundations, mainly uh, when we look at the world, that'll lead into 10 practical exhortations. Like my hope is that you would be able to walk away from thinking about the role of the local church in 21st century missions, that you might even be able to take these 10 things. So this is an exercise I've done uh, with groups of pastors where we walk through these 10 sorts of things and then kind of look at our local church and say, uh, how are we doing? Scale of one to 10, like 10, we're nailing that one. Uh, or one, we're not nailing that one, or I haven't even thought about that one. So, and in between. And so maybe just as a guide to hopefully fuel maybe conversation over lunch as you think through, okay, how do we put some of these things that we see in God's word into practice in a local church when it comes to uh, 21st century missions, missions today. So I'm gonna have some notes up here on the screen because it's a lot of content to cover. So hopefully this will be helpful. So here we go. There we go. Number one. So these are five foundations to get us started. We'll go through these pretty quick. One, Christians have been saved solely by God's grace and supremely for God's glory among all the nations. Christians have been saved. We celebrate solely by God's grace. It's his sovereign grace that saves us. He calls us. He chooses us by his mercy for his glory, supremely for God's glory among all nations. So basically here, the sole ground of salvation is the sovereign grace of God. The supreme aim of salvation is the global glory of God. Global glory. Uh, So many different texts we could go to at this point. I would argue from cover to cover in scripture, no one is saved by anything but God's grace. And it's always for God's glory among all the nations. I was quoting last night from just Ezekiel 36, maybe the clearest, when God is recounting what he has done and what he's about to do among his people in the Old Testament. And he says, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm doing these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, the name you profaned among the nations. The nations will know that I'm the Lord when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. God's saying, I'm going to pour out my grace on you in discipline and in restoration through exile and return. I'm going to do all of that for my glory. This is what I just got finished. We had my Old Testament readings in um, Time of the Lord in the Morning. We just got finished reading through as a church, Exodus. And I mean, clearly God saves his people by his grace, redeems them out of slavery in Egypt for his glory among the nations. When you get to Exodus chapter 14, verse Four. And remember, they've, they've been brought out after all those plagues. They have, uh, they're being led by a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, and they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and Egyptian army is about to overtake them. And God says, I'm going to gain glory for myself by splitting this sea in half, sending you through on dry land, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That's God showing grace for his glory. This is what all of history's headed toward. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue gather around giving him glory for his grace and salvation. Christians have been saved solely by God's grace and supremely for God's glory among all the nations of the earth. Which is why, number two, the church has been given a great commission to make disciples and multiply churches among every people group in the world, among every nation. So, When the Bible talks about nations, it's talking about ethnic groups, people groups, ethno-linguistic groups, groups that share common language, cultural characteristics. If God has saved us for his glory among all the nations, then he's given us a plan to make disciples and multiply churches among all of those nations, among every people group in the world. Anthropological, missiological scholars estimate about 17,000 people groups in the world, approximately 7,000 of them. Well, that'll get to the, uh, jumping ahead. Let's start with, keep keep with number two, great commission. We have been commanded, not generally just to make disciples among as many people as possible in Indianapolis or Washington, D.C. or wherever you serve. We've been commanded by Jesus to make disciples of all the nations, of all the people groups in the world. 
And out of 17,000 or so people groups in the world, over three billion people and over 7,000 people groups remain unreached by the gospel. Unreached meaning they don't have access to the gospel. No one has shared the gospel with them. And practically the way that plays out, when we talk about unreached people, we're talking about people who are born, they live and they die, and the likelihood is they will never even hear the gospel. They don't don't have Christians and churches around them who can share the gospel with them. They're unreached by it. And this is a map we looked at real briefly last night, but Joshua Project puts out, as we partner together with them, that just shows the state of the world when it comes to access to the gospel. And the green areas on this map, hopefully you're familiar with this map, but the green areas on this map show areas that have been reached with the gospel obviously does not mean that everybody in these places is saved or is a Christian by any means. And there are, there's certainly people in these places that still, I mean, I think about major cities, communities that are represented around this room where there are people who have not had a meaningful exposure to the gospel, but by God's grace in these places where there is green, there are Christians who know the gospel. There are churches that are proclaiming the gospel. That's what's represented in the green. On the yellow on this map are areas where there's a weaker church presence, a weaker gospel presence. Either the gospel's new in that place and the church has just started to grow, or the gospel has waned in that place. There was once gospel preaching Christians and churches in that place, but there are fewer and fewer there. So you think about different parts of Europe specifically. So that's yellow. But then the red areas on this map are the areas that are for the most part, unreached by the gospel. This is where most of those 7,000 people groups are concentrated, where they don't have access to the good news of how God loves us enough that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. Many of them have never even heard his name, the theme of this conference, Jesus is greater. We're talking about people who when you walk into a village and you say, what do you know about Jesus? And they look back at you and they say, who's that? Is that? It's almost like you're talking about somebody in another village. They have no idea who he is, never even heard his name, or they've heard lies about him, never heard the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we know, based on all of Scripture teaches, specifically the book of Romans, which emphasizes this, that if they do not hear the gospel, they cannot place their faith in Jesus. And if they cannot place their faith in Jesus, then they cannot be saved. So we're talking about three billion people in the world who right now, if nothing changes, will be born, live, and die, and will go to an eternal hell without ever even hearing how they can go to heaven. So that's, that's foundation number three. Foundation number four, which is what we talked about a ton last night, we have settled with this great commission as the church today for a great imbalance approximately 99% of our missions resources and approximately 97% of our missionaries are going to people and places that have been reached by the gospel. So if you weren't here last night, just to make sure this is really clear, we're talking about missions resources. We're not just talking about giving in the church. That giving is hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars that we give to the church, that we and the church give to things like budgets and staff and programs and all sorts of things, all sorts of ministries, many good things. But then we're talking about the slice of that that we give to missions, about $47 billion. And out of that slice that we give to missions, approximately 99% of what we're giving to missions is going to places that are already reached by the gospel. And as we send out missionaries from our churches to go to the nations, approximately 97% of those missionaries are going to places reached by the gospel. So if we could go back to this map, we're basically sending our money and our missionaries when it comes to missions to these places in the world while we're ignoring the nations who need the gospel most. Not that there is not good work to be done in many of these places, there are not brothers and sisters to come alongside in Latin America, South America, and Sub-Saharan Africa, and parts of Europe. Yes, there's, there's 
so many good brothers and sisters and praise God for missionaries who have worked and who have labored in those places. But at some point, if we are going to be serious about the great commission, then we must take the gospel to all the nations. We can't settle for this great imbalance. As long as we settle for this great imbalance, we will be disobeying the great commission in our day. Which leads to foundation number five. God has given pastors and church leaders the undeserved privilege, unambiguous responsibility, and unprecedented opportunity to rectify this great imbalance and obey this great commission. So I just, every one of those words matters there in my mind. Thinking of pastors and church leaders, I'm assuming that because you're at this conference, you're either a pastor or a leader in your church in some way, God has given us the undeserved privilege. Let's just stop there. Think about my own life. I was, I was born into a family where I've heard the gospel ever since I was born. Can I just state the obvious? I had nothing to do with where I was born. That's the pure mercy of God. Like, why was I not born into a remote part of the Middle East where the gospel is not yet gone? Why was I born into a place where I've heard the gospel my entire life? I have no explanation for that but the grace and mercy of Almighty God. And I don't know if your story is the same, but I'm assuming that if you're at a gospel coalition conference, you've heard the gospel before. If not, let's just go ahead and get it out there. God loves you. He created you in his image. You, I, all of us have sinned against God, we've turned from God, his ways to our own ways, and we deserve judgment before God. We're separated from God by our sin, and when we die, we will experience eternal separation from his love. But God loves us and doesn't want us to die without him. He desires us to know him, to be restored to him so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to do what none of us could ever do, to live the life we couldn't live, a life of no sin. And then even though he had no sin to die, he chose to die the death we deserve to die on a cross to pay the price for the sins of all who trust in him. And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. And now he offers eternal life to anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him by grace through faith in Jesus. It's the greatest news in the world. So now, just in case you didn't have it, now you have it. And that's a picture of the mercy of God that three billion people are still waiting to hear. And we have it. Talk about a privilege that we get to be in a room like this. That's why I was praying, because I was just thinking about this breakout, that we're even a part of this conversation is the mercy of God. And I don't know why he's given me, us, this mercy, as far as what, what, just the grace, the fountain of grace in him, but I do know why in the sense he's given us this mercy for a mission. He's not given us this mercy to stop with us. He's given us this mercy to spread through us. And we have a privilege and unambiguous responsibility, meaning it's crystal clear. Make disciples of all the nations. He's made it clear. He's told us from cover to cover in scripture, this is what I'm about, making my glory known among all the nations. I've told you, this is where all of history is headed. So if you want to, this is where the train of history is headed, then, and you're the people of God, then jump on that train and live for that. Unambiguous responsibility. Pastors, church leaders, we have the responsibility to shepherd the church, to love and lead the church, to make disciples of all the nations. George Pentecost said about 100 years ago at a prominent missions conference, he said, to the pastor belongs the privilege and responsibility of the missionary problem. And basically what he was saying is, Missionaries can and should do this or that, and mission organizations exist to kind of help facilitate this, but it's the responsibility and privilege of every pastor to shepherd every local church in such a way that leads to the spread of God's glory among all the nations. Pastor, this is your responsibility as a shepherd in the church, to shepherd the church, to make disciples of all the nations. That's unambiguous responsibility that God has given to us, entrusted to us, pastors, leaders in the church. And I'm convinced if we would just get this, it would change everything. 
I talk to so many missions pastors in the church who have a ceiling over their head because they're trying to mobilize people to make disciples of the nations, but the senior pastor, lead pastor is pushing back against that, doesn't have a heart for that. And brother pastor, if you don't have a heart for the spread of the gospel to all the nations, then you don't have the heart of Jesus. This is his heart. He wants, he died to redeem people, to ransom men and women for God from every nation and tribe and people and language. If that's what he died for, this is what we live for. This is what we lead for. We have an unambiguous responsibility and an unprecedented opportunity. The opportunity we have, you and I, again, God's grace in this place, in this room, this gathering right now with the resources we have, the technology we have, the ease of travel we have, the globalization of today's marketplace, the urbanization of the world as God brings, and even different migration of peoples brings peoples to us, unprecedented wealth in the world. Why has God given all these things for the spread of his glory among all the nations? Let's steward this faithfully, this unprecedented opportunity to rectify this great imbalance and obey this great commission. So, all right, those are five foundations. So flowing from that, flowing from that, here are 10 just practical exhortations that I would give. So if if these things are true, then what does that mean I, I, I do week in and week out? We do as pastors and leaders in the church. So one, preach the unfading word in view of the unreached world. So preach the unfading word in view of the unreached world. So absolutely, give, give them the word every week. Give them the word. Help them to love this word. Help them to love this word so much that they, they, they digest it and they memorize it and they meditate on it. They, they love this word. And, and do that in view of the unreached world. So the reality is, so don't just preach the word almost under the assumption that everybody has this, because they don't, because three billion plus people in the world don't have it, never even heard it. And so give them a love for this word that when they then start to see there's three billion people in the world that don't have it, they say, well, that needs to change. Like, I love this word so much. I know this word brings life. It saves me. It satisfies me. It corrects me. It does all the second... Timothy chapter three, verse 16 through 18 says it does. Like, I, I want that for everybody. So they start to go. I think about my time with the Lord this morning was in Psalm 19. And we know that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Just talks about the glory of God in creation. And then, you know, that shift that happens around verse seven when the Bible starts to talk about, yes, yes, God's revelation in creation is awesome, but on an even greater level the word of God, the law of the Lord. And it starts giving all those different descriptors of God's laws, true and clear and right and pure and radiant, how it revives and restores and gives light, enlightens the eyes and leads to reward. It's sweeter than honey. It's greater than money. And the the picture is clear. If people are gonna know God, creation is insufficient. It'll get so far, Romans chapter one. It'll reveal God's internal powers, his divine nature, clearly seen, being understood of what is made so that men are without excuse. But if that's all they have, like picture it. I, I think about uh, sitting in a village in the Himalayas and you're looking out at beauty, like just majestic beauty all around you. You just want to take a picture everywhere you look, but no picture does it justice. Just when you're sitting at like 12,000 feet and you're like halfway up this mountain beside you. It's crazy, the majesty. And then you realize amidst all these villages that have not heard the gospel, that all of this beauty is ultimately insufficient. You know what the effect of all that beauty is ultimately? It damns. It's enough to show that there's a glorious God who made all of this. We have sinned against him, and that's it. Which means you come into that village, you speak the name of Jesus, and you tell the gospel the truth about Jesus, you're bringing beauty that all this landscape can't even touch. 
can't compare with. And when people in the church realize we have that beauty here and there's three billion people who don't have that beauty before them, they don't have the word before them, they will go and you'll be leading them to go. And so preach the unfading word. Yes, in view of the unreached world, may unreached people, groups, be a common verbiage in your church. Why? Because Jesus has told us, make disciples of all the nations, and there's 7,000 nations, groups of people, yet to hear the gospel, the word of God. So may this be clear, like lead them to pray. Like when you're gathering together, yes, spend however long you spend proclaiming this word. At some point, spend some time pleading for this word to go to people who've never heard it. And just pull up a, the Unreached of the Day app on Joshua Project. Just do it on a Sunday. Just, it'll take you two minutes. The Amhara people, Wallop people in Ethiopia. So starts talking about all these indigenous peoples up in the northern part of Ethiopia. It's really interesting. My Lyft driver yesterday was from this particular people group. Um, but you notice 5.89 million people, 0.2%. Evangelical. When we think of Ethiopia, there are a lot of followers of Jesus in Ethiopia, but particularly up here in the north, there's a lot less and there's more unreached people groups in some of the extreme parts of Ethiopia. In particular, in this place, you've seen a lot in the news about the uh, northern part of Ethiopia recently. Regardless, like, like walk people through. Like this, is, this is a people group. And there's, there's six million of them. And there's a handful of believers. Let's pray right now for the spread of this word to them. We love this word. We know they need this word. Let's pray for this. You do that week in and week out, things start to change. You start to get God's heart for the nations in your church. So preach the unfading word in view of the unreached world. All right, number two. Call people to supreme love for and radical identification with Jesus. Supreme love for Jesus and radical identification with Jesus. So here's why I emphasize this foundationally. Uh, supreme love. The last thing we want to do in the church is try to manufacture a heart for missions and miss a heart for Jesus. So don't bypass that one. Like start with just, just nurturing. The more people love Jesus, the more they will want Jesus to be made known in the world and radical identification with Jesus. So the reason I emphasize that and even use those words is because when you look at Matthew chapter four, verse 19, Jesus' initial invitation to those disciples, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. From the very beginning, to follow him would be to fish for men. That fishing would be the overflow of following. In the same way that you get to the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations. You think about it. These disciples, did they have to be cajoled into doing that? No, they had to be told to not, not do that too soon. Like, wait, you're going to mess this up if you do this before the Holy Spirit comes. So, so these guys had seen Jesus die on a cross, rise from the dead. Like They were ready to go tell somebody about this. Why? Because... They loved Jesus. They were identified with Jesus. And mission was the overflow of that. Acts 1.8 makes clear that mission to the ends of the earth is the overflow of intimacy with the Spirit of God. So if we, so put all that together, we, I think we have to come to the conclusion, if we're not making disciples of the nations, giving ourselves a mission to the ends of the earth, fishing for men among all the people groups in the world, if we're not doing that, then there's a problem with our following. There's a lack of intimacy here with Jesus. There's a lack of intimacy with the Holy Spirit of God because those who walk with the, in the power of the Spirit of God are witnesses to the ends of the earth and those who follow Jesus are fishers of men. Those who, who are disciples of Jesus and in love with Jesus are making disciples of Jesus among the nations. That's what we see in God's word. So that's why I don't want to just focus on the second part and bypass the first part. Missions is the overflow of passion for Jesus Christ. To live is Christ. It's my life. He's my life. So to raise up people for whom that's the case, and then just kind of connect the dots, then what happens when we go to other nations, right? So we're not just going to other nations and saying, hey, just say these words, pray these prayers, and you're in, and just kind of move on. 
Like the last thing the nations need is the exportation of nominal Christianity from us. Like they need a picture of Jesus who's worthy of their lives. So, so how can we in our churches then call people to supreme love for Jesus and radical identification with Jesus? Self-denying people who are laying aside the pleasures and possessions and pursuits of this world to follow Jesus however, wherever he leads, and to make Jesus known wherever they live and wherever God leads. So, third, reorient, and related to this, reorient discipleship in your local church around the global purpose of God. So, I just want to be, my, my, hope, it would, my hope is, coming out of these few minutes, is that you would not walk away thinking, okay, we need a better missions program. I mean, maybe, maybe, some of the practical things that go along there. But I was talking, I'll put it this way, I was talking with a, uh, she's probably about 23-year-old, sister in Christ, last week, and she is zealous for the spread of God's glory among the nations. She's trying to discern what does that look like in my life, whether that's through uh, this in graduate school or uh, live here, live somewhere else in the world. She's asking all kinds of great questions, but she's zealous. What, what's driving her is just how can I glorify God most among the nations with my life, with my resources, my time. And I, I said, how did you like get that zeal? And she said, well, the person who led me to Christ just from the very beginning started showing me this is what God is passionate about, his glory among all the nations. This is just the way I understand Christianity. That, that is what I, I pray for every member in our church. And one of the things that most excites me as a pastor is thinking about children, any child who grows up in our church, who goes through, a, I hope, a children's preschool and children's ministry where they're hearing about unreached people and the spread of the gospel of the nations and God's passion for his glory and how God saves us for his glory, to enjoy and exalt his glory among all the nations. And that, that is infused in the way they think about their lives as elementary schoolers and middle schoolers and high schoolers so that when they go off to college and they start to think through, this is why we just started a gap year program with Radical because there's so many decisions that are about to be made about degrees that people are gonna get or people are gonna date or gonna marry and to say, listen, every single one of those decisions need to be driven by zeal for the spread of God's glory among the nations. Don't yoke your life together with somebody else who's not zealous for the spread of God's glory among all the nations and for parents to see, this is what we need to be raising our kids for, not to, not to be great at sports, to have, get great degrees or go to great colleges or get great jobs. It's not that any of those things are bad, but if we lead them to do all those things and we run around town getting them to do all those things really well, spend so many hours on all these things, we don't teach them to know God and love God and memorize God's word and meditate on God's word and, and walk with God and share the gospel among the nations, we've missed the point. We've, the point of parenting is to raise children to love a great God and accomplish a great commission. And we've been duped into thinking it's all this other stuff in the world. Not that, again, all those things are bad, but reorient discipleship in every facet of the church around the global purpose of God, that it, be, that it might be infused into the whole picture. And lest you think, well, you're imposing something on the church that God doesn't intend, just read the Bible. I'm going to bless you for the spread of my blessing to all the peoples of the earth. It's from the beginning of God's people, all the way to the end. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing about a day when every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people will sing my praise and give me glory, beginning to end. And you mark it down all throughout, of, all throughout Scripture, the global purpose of God has been resisted by the comfortable people of God. So, so let's not be that people. Let's reorient what it means to follow Jesus around the purpose of Jesus in the world. Reorient discipleship in your local church around the global purpose of God. And that, this affects the way we teach people about work and the value of work, retirement plans, dreams, so much we could talk about there. But do people in your local church see following Jesus? See, see making disciples among the nations as the fruit of just what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That just makes sense. We talk about taking the gospel to the nations, praying toward that end, giving toward that end, going toward that end as God leads. Number four. Train and empower people to make disciples and multiple, make biblical disciples and multiply biblical churches without dependence on performances, programs, and professionals. Here's what I mean by that, and here's why I put biblical in there. 
just mainly because I see a lot in missions world that is unbiblical, that's attached to Christian or unbiblical that's attached to church. And so I just want to make sure it's clear. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about uh, church. Oh yeah, wherever two or three are gathered, that's church. And we kind of move on. Like beyond the fact that that's a total abuse of Matthew chapter 18. That's not what the Bible defines as a church, two or three people together. So I'm talking about biblical churches who are pursuing all the biblical traits of a church and biblical disciples, people who are following Jesus. We're not just going and counting numbers in order to report back good numbers. So we're making biblical disciples, biblical churches, but train and empower people to do that without dependence on performances, programs, and professionals. I feel like I probably need to give a couple caveats here, but here's what, here's what I mean. If we're not careful, we'll communicate in our churches, this is the way disciples are made. Come to uh, a large gathering where a couple people, one main person stands on stage, some talented musicians also stand on that stage. And then, so you do that, and then, and then go participate in a children's program, a youth program, a singles program, a young adults program, a seniors program, a this life age, age and life stage program, this age and life stage program. And most of those run by professionals and think, okay, well, this is how disciples are made. Now, I want to be really careful. So here's the caveat. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm certainly not saying corporate worship is bad. Proclamation of the word, musical worship and singing, and having intentional ways to help children in discipleship and come alongside parents in that way and students and all kinds of different people going through all kinds of different things in life. So, but what I'm after here is what happens when God does what he did in Acts 13 and he picks up somebody from your church, the church that I'm in, and moves them to an unreached part of the world and says, I want you to live for the spread of the gospel there. I say all the time in our church family, I want every member of our church to be in a position where God could do that and they would know when they get there how to make disciples, gather together as the church and make more disciples and multiply the church with nothing but the word of God and the spirit of God and the people of God. Without dependence on what I've called here performances, programs, and professionals. Like, I, I, want to, I want to raise up an army of brothers and sisters. And when I use army, I, I'm talking about spiritual war. It is a spiritual war. But who are ready for that battle? Who know how to make disciples with just the word of God and the spirit of God as a part of the church. So how do we train and empower people to do that? There's a ton we could talk about practically. What does that look like? But that's number four. Number five, lead the church pray and fast for that which can only be accomplished by the Spirit of God and only be attributed to the glory of God. Lead the church to pray and fast for that which can only be accomplished by the Spirit of God and attributed to the glory of God. So much we could dive into here. I'll, I'll just give a, a, a confession and over, uh, yeah, quick overview of conviction in my own heart. So, and I mentioned this real briefly last night, but I, I've been to uh, South Korea on numerous occasions, um, but the last time I was there, um, was in this church, these brothers and sisters, and uh, I began to learn more about the history of the church on the Korean Peninsula. And the quick overview is around 1900, the percentage of Christians in, on the Korean Peninsula was less than 1%. And what happened is, a few years into the 20th century, they had uh, a meeting of pastors and leaders and missionaries who were working there and at this multi-day meeting, they all of a sudden began to break out in spontaneous confession of sin and reconciliation with each other and honesty before God and audible weeping before God in prayer. And that sparked a movement that really marked the next century, and I'm oversimplifying a lot, but marked the next century of the church on the Korean Peninsula. And the marks of the church there, just desperate prayer. 
prayer meetings every morning at four in the morning, all night prayer meetings on Friday nights that still continue, are still happening today. I remember a seminary professor of mine uh, having gone to South Korea and he was in this particular hotel and uh, it was about four in the morning and he gets woken up by this noise outside his hotel and he kind of walks over groggily. It's just like crowd noise. He walks over groggily, opens the window. He looks, there's a stadium over here and it's full of people yelling. And he was pretty frustrated to be awake at the four in the morning by this group of sports fans or whatever they were doing. And he, so he, the next, after a few hours go by, he goes downstairs. He's like, what, what sport do you guys play at four in the morning? And I said, oh, that was not a sporting event. That was the church gathering together to pray. And so I came back, I'll confess, I, up until a couple years ago, I'd never been a part of a all night prayer gathering. I'd never led the church to pray all night or even like six to midnight, or even multiple hours. Like I've, I've just not led the church well in this way, to fast and pray like this. And so we started making some major changes and having at least quarterly times where they either pray together all night or late into the night. And these are by far my favorite times as a pastor now. Go back to Korea, turn of the century, 1900, one, less than 1%, by 2000, 100 years later, there were more than 10 million followers of Jesus in South Korea alone. And they're second only in the United States when it comes to sending out missionaries around the world, which is pretty remarkable when you think about South Korea is the size of about Florida and California combined. Now, that's a mighty move of God. I was praying last, we were praying last night for Afghanistan. Like, think of a country like Afghanistan, less than 1% Christian. Can you imagine a century from now having 10 million followers of Jesus in Afghanistan? And they're sending out missionaries all over the world? Can God do that? Absolutely God can do that if his people will ask him to do that. You have not because you ask not. Let's, let's ask for God to show his glory among the nations. Let's, let's set aside hours to pray and to fast for God to do what only his spirit can do and that which can only be attributed to his glory. Not in a way that any personality, any church would get credit, that God alone can get the credit. I want to be a part of that. So let's lead the church to pray and fast like that. Number six, I've got three minutes. Man, uh, all right, so six, send missionaries to the unreached from your local church. Send missionaries to the unreached from your local church. Like, if there's three billion people who haven't heard the gospel, I think it would be shocking, shocking for any church, no matter what size, for God not to send somebody out in an Acts 13 kind of way. So here's practically how I would encourage you to do this. Like, this is what we do at least once, if not multiple times a year, where we have a time where we just call the church, okay, this weekend we're gonna fast, anticipation of this Sunday, we're gonna pray, and we're just gonna all put our lives, I'm gonna put my life in a fresh way on the table, you do the same, put our lives on the table and say, God, are you leading us to go? Are you leading us to go? Well, let's all just ask him. And then on that Sunday, you preach. So you're preaching, this is not a once a year mission sermon, like mission, spread of God's glory among all the nations, integrating all year long, all over the word, integrating into the, all the life of the church. But then once, twice a year, have some time where you say, okay, who, who's he setting apart to move for the spread of the gospel to the unreached? And then you give people an opportunity to respond. Just at the end of that service, you say, okay, we're asking God to do this. Who's, who's he calling out? And he will call people out. He'll call, if you give them an opportunity, and then you start to walk with them through that. You start to shepherd them through a process. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, then figure out how to do that. Is there anything, like, that's important to figure out how to get the gospel to the nations, how to shepherd your church. It's part of what it means for us to be pastors and leaders in the church. Number seven, promote multiple avenues then for people to go to the unreached. Short-term, mid-term, long-term, studying, working, vacationing, retiring, as a vocation, through a vocation. Point is, there's so many ways people can go. So many ways people go. So fuel healthy short-term mission trips where you're coming alongside brothers and sisters in different parts of the world and being a part of. Like I think about trips I've been on in pretty unreached places where 
I can go in and I can do something and if I get kicked out, it's not near as big a deal as if this person gets kicked out who's living there. And so, so there's, there's all kinds of ways to fuel in a week or two work that's going long term in a particular place, short term, mid term. So think for a month or two or a year or two, so to, to go and this is where college students, high school students, uh, there's, unless there's an audible voice from God saying, don't go, like why not look for an opportunity to go and be a part of the spread of the gospel among the nations for a concentrated time over a summer or semester or year or two. And maybe God will lead you to come back among the reached and work here. You'll have a totally different perspective on that. Or maybe, maybe God will lead you to spend your life there. So when I think about people going on short-term, mid-term trips, Oftentimes, God says, okay, I want you to do this longer term. And there's all kinds of avenues for people to go long term as their vocation, through, uh, as a vocation, meaning I'm going to go and be supported by the church as a missionary, or I'm going to go through a vocation. I'm going to get a job somewhere else in the world. Why not train our college students to look for jobs around the world, particularly among the unreached? Or not just jobs, studying. Why not look for opportunities to study, at least for a semester, or maybe to get degrees? There's some universities overseas that will give full scholarships to Americans who want to come study over there in the middle of unreached people. You get a great degree overseas while living for the spread of the gospel among the nations. That's totally countercultural to the way we think, but it's totally in line with what God is doing in the world. So many opportunities. Retiring, why not spend the last days we, before we see our Savior's face instead of playing golf in South Florida, spreading the gospel in North Africa? What's well, a better way to spend those days? to think through multiple avenues and to promote those in the church and to get people thinking about all the different ways. That's what I love, the creativity of God, all kinds of different people in the church. I think about, I'll tell you one quick story. Uh, I don't have time to tell a story. Okay, uh, number, number eight, number eight. Give wisely, generously, and sacrificially from your local church for God's global purpose. Give wisely, generously, and sacrificially from your local church for God's global purpose. Meaning, meaning, like, if we're going to correct this imbalance, we've got to give more wisely. We've got to, we've got to get behind work among the unreached. This is part of why uh, we, we started something called Urgent. And there's so many different ways to do this. But, but to say, how do we get behind brothers and sisters financially who are doing work among the unreached? Generously, give generously and sacrificially from our local churches for God's global purpose. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do our church budgets say about our heart for the nations? What does your church budget say about your heart for God's glory among the nations? Where your treasure is, there your heart is. So that's number eight. Number nine, prioritize urgent spiritual need in the world while responding to urgent physical need in the world. Prioritize urgent spiritual need in the world, meaning people's greatest need is the gospel. People's greatest need is the gospel. At the same time, we live in a world of urgent physical needs. Urgent physical needs. So last night we walked through something called Stratus. And at the end of this session, uh, if, you, if you've got a minute to hang on, I'm gonna show you a video that will introduce you to Stratus. But it's basically a tool for the church to be able to see not just where the gospel needs to go in the world, but what are the needs and the barriers that are keeping the gospel from going there. I'm actually doing a whole breakout session on Stratus, uh, the next breakout session after lunch. So if you wanna be a part of that, feel free to do that. But We've got to think wisely through. If we're going to make disciples of the nations, there's a lot of nations that are starving. There's a lot of nations that uh, yeah, don't have clean water. There's a lot of nations without any kind of medical care. There's a lot of nations without all kinds of needs. And there's all kinds of ways to go about approaching those particular needs with the gospel in our mouth always. Prioritize urgent spiritual need in the world while responding to urgent physical need in the world. Number 10, number 10. Prepare people to suffer and die and shepherd people amidst suffering and death as they make disciples among all the nations. Here's why I wanna make sure to land there. I just don't, I don't want in any way to give off the impression that what we've just talked about will be easy or without cost. To those who go, I've had enough conversations with family members whose spouses or children or parents have died on the field. Or conversations with brothers and sisters sent out from our church who 
have walked through all kinds of trauma and challenge. Unreached people are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach, they're difficult to reach, they're dangerous to reach. All the easy ones are taken. So any church, any Christian that wants to be serious about making disciples of all the nations will experience exactly what Jesus told us we will experience. Opposition at every turn, from inside, from outside. And I would also say this for pastors and church leaders. I think about one pastor who's a hero of mine who I heard about this pastor initially. And I'm guessing very few of you probably even know his name. But I heard about him initially from people I'd met around the world who'd gone through his church and been shepherded to love God's glory among the nations where they loved their own lives. And I remember once I got to know him, just my respect for him growing, and he was in about his 30th year. And I said, hey, one day I said, hey, how are things going? He said, this has been the hardest year yet. I started talking about all kinds of challenges within the church. The hardest year yet. Does that phrase sound familiar? And I got so discouraged listening to him because I thought 30 years and that was the hardest one? Like it doesn't get any easier? But that's when I realized, David, you are foolish to think that at any point, as long as you are shepherding people to make disciples of the nations, that it's going to get easy in this world. It's just not. But that's the whole point. We're not living for this world. We have an enduring city to come. And when our eyes are fixed there, then whatever the Lord calls us to do makes total sense. Let's fix our eyes on Him in a Hebrews 12 kind of way. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.